Special welcome to all the guests, most of which I know. Um, so, as Michael said, we're in Luke 24 this morning, and we will be discussing the resurrection. So, the resurrection is obviously a story that is foundational to Christianity, and a lot of people um, you know, have discussed it, and in our day, um, a lot of people use it and uh, for a lot of different things. So, you know, for example, people will say the resurrection proves that Jesus is divine, right? He rose from the dead, so he's God. Um, they'll say, you know, the resurrection proves that everything Jesus said is true, right? Um, all, all kinds of things. This morning, I would like to try as much as possible to see what the resurrection meant to the first century audience. So the Jews during this time, they were all Jews, right? What did the resurrection mean to them? Chet actually uh, mentioned this several weeks ago when we were talking about the Lord's Supper. He said that we need to read as much as possible the text with first century lenses or goggles, right? And he talked about reclining at table, what that meant. Um, I am a big advocate of that. That's a big reason why we're going to Israel to study Hebrew more, and study the culture. Um, So that is what I would like to do this morning. So that's, of course, not to say that those other ways of using the resurrection are not valid, just that I want to look at what it meant in this context. So if there's one thing um, I want everyone to go home with um, that they would learn, it would be how Jesus is reigning as king. So that's big picture what I think this is about. And if there's one thing I would want everyone to do, it would be to devote your life to the cause of Jesus' kingdom. So, just small things. <laughs> so, given these um, things, we are going to look a lot in the Old Testament because you really can't understand the culture of the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And I'm a Hebrew person, so I love the Old Testament, so this is my opportunity to go there. So, um, with these things being said, uh, let me just pray for for us real quick, and we'll get started. Lord, you are high and holy, and even now, there are angels worshiping you, crying out that you are holy that your glory fills the world. Lord, I ask that we would understand that more clearly this morning. Lord, I ask that you would speak. Lord, it is so pointless to hear myself, but you and your word, Lord, bring life. So I ask that you would come and be here that you would teach us all how to love you, that you would teach us all that you are king. We ask all of this for the glory of your Son. Amen.
All right, so if you have your Bibles, Luke 24. So I've broken up the text into five sections. Um, With each section, we will be answering one question. So the first section is verses 1 through 12. So starting in verse 1, but on the first day of the week, At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So the question for this section is why are they astonished? Why are the disciples so surprised that Jesus rose from the dead? So Chet looked at last week, right, just for a little bit of context because everyone hasn't been here. Um, Jesus was just crucified, right? So he died on Friday. And now this is Sunday, and his body's gone, right? So why are the disciples perplexed? Initially, the women go to the tomb, right, in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, right, they were perplexed they didn't find the body. Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and this is, this is the interesting thing, right? What do they say? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So Jesus had already told them, right, that he was going to be crucified and that he was going to rise. So why were they so astonished when that actually happened? So we actually see... In Luke, Luke records him, uh, Jesus telling his disciples this, this very thing. In, in Luke 9, uh, 21 through 23, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So what's, what's really astonishing about this is, well, several things. Um, the disciples, as a disciple, your only task in life was to remember and recite your teacher's sayings, right? That's all you did. They followed Jesus around and just wanted to see what he said and what he did. So if you had someone tell you that you would rise from the dead, you would think you would remember that, right? (laughs) Especially if your only role in life was to listen to this man. But still, they have no idea what's going on, right? So why? Why is this the case? And in order to really understand this, I think we have to look at, well, really the conception of the resurrection 
during this time period, right? It, it is not because they disbelieved in resurrection. So they, are, they believed in a resurrection. So Jesus actually argues with this group called the Sadducees earlier in, in Luke, in Luke 20, 34 through 40. We, we don't have to read it, but um, Ju- Jesus sides with the Pharisees and says that the resurrection is real, right? And all the disciples knew this. They all believed that the resurrection would happen, but they didn't believe it, it would happen like this, right? And so that's why they're so perplexed. So the Old Testament conception of resurrection, or really the first century conception, um, can be seen in a passage like Daniel 12. So Daniel is a really popular book um, during the first century. Part of the reason is because it talked so much about the end times and when the Messiah would come. So in Daniel 12, verse 2, it says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So let me just explain this really quick. Many of those who sleep in the dust. So not just one person, right? Many. They would... So sleeping in the dust is, you know, being dead. Um, And they shall awake, or their bodies shall rise, right? So the Old Testament talks about this time when a lot of people will rise from the dead. So in the first century, those are the texts that they would go to for their conception of the resurrection. They would say, okay, at the last day, we're going to have a lot of people, basically those who had been faithful to God, they're going to rise from the dead. No one was expecting one person to do that before everyone else. No one. So this is why it was so perplexing to them, and they didn't believe him. Right? And we we see, you know, in... um, you know, the women were perplexed about this. It doesn't actually say they did not believe them, but interestingly, the, the disciples, the 11 who were with him, who heard these things multiple times, you know, in verse 11 it says, these words seem to them an idle tale. I think that's, that's pretty weak translation. It's, it's nonsense, right? They, it was absolute nonsense to them. And they did not believe them. So I, I think one practical thing to learn from this um, is really the disciples, it's pretty incredible that, you know, before this, right, they had followed Jesus for three years without understanding anything about the death or resurrection of Jesus. So we all have the privilege of looking back, right? We can say, Jesus rose from the dead. That's crazy. But they they had no idea that that was going to happen. And I think the lesson, one lesson that we learned from this is that, you don't really need that much understanding to be a Christian. You really don't. But you need to be faithful to the revelation you've been given. You do need some understanding. You do. But you have to be faithful to the revelation you've been given. So the next section, right, is verse 13 to 21. So we see this initial scene um, Verse 13 starts a new scene. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. So two of them being two of the group of the disciples. Um, Not the eleven, but just disciples in general. About seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So I know we're stopping in the middle of his train of thought. But I I think there are some really significant things here. So the question for this section is what was the hope for Jesus? Right? What what were they hoping for? So in, in verse 19, Jesus is called a prophet, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. That's really significant that Jesus is called a prophet here by his disciples and not the Messiah. Right? He's not called the Messiah. And we're, I'll explain what Messiah means or Christ um, in a couple minutes. But he does not call him the Christ, even though before they had recognized that he was. So he's just a prophet now. And in, in 21 it says, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Meaning, are they still hoping? No. Right? We had hoped. We're no longer hoping. So why, why did they hope that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel? And why are they no longer hoping that he would? Again, the significant point is what was their hope? What were they hoping for? Right? So for that, um, a passage like Zephaniah 3 um, tells us a little bit about what they were hoping for. So they were obviously hoping for redeeming Israel. For Israel to be redeemed. So, right, what does that mean? Right, what does redeem mean? And who is Israel? So, in Zephaniah 3, uh, verse 15, this is talking about um, the salvation that is coming to Israel. It says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. And so, so uh, just point of clarification, the... Old Testament is in Hebrew, right? It was translated into Greek um, before the time of Jesus. A lot of people in Jesus' time were reading the Greek version. So the same Greek word that is um, redeem, right? Translated redeem in English in, tw- in Luke 24, 21, is the same word in Zephaniah three fifteen. He has cleared away your enemies, right? He has redeemed you from your enemies. So it says... The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has redeemed you from your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So who is the enemy of Israel at this time? Rome, right? The pagan nation that is ruling over them, which is makes a lot of sense, right? Um, they're ruling over Israel. And importantly, they're not allowing Israel, 
to worship God in the way that the, the law calls them to, right? So we read in Zechariah, or uh, earlier in Luke, in chapter 1, Zechariah, which is Jesus' uncle, prophesies this about Jesus. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Right? So Zechariah already prophesied that he would redeem Israel. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So, what were these disciples hoping for? They were hoping that Jesus would come and rescue them from Roman oppression so that they could serve God in the way that the Old Testament commanded. Right? This is not, I mean, I think sometimes we don't really understand, you know, why did the disciples want to be, um, or why did the Jews during this time have such a, you know, big beef with Rome? Right? It's because they were not allowed to serve God as the Old Testament says they should. So, for example, they, they, couldn't, they didn't have the power to inflict capital punishment, even though the law says you have to, right? For example, for murder. So, the Jews wanted to be able to worship God as they were told to. So, the second question, right, for this section, what was the hope for Jesus? It was to be the king who would rescue Israel from Rome. That was the hope. That hope has obviously been dashed because Jesus died. Right? Okay, so moving on. Next section, starting in 22. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So, I, I really think if there was one conversation I could be at in history, it would probably be this one, right? Man, if I could hear what Jesus was saying and explaining to them about the Old Testament, about how it all pointed to him, that would be awesome, but I can't. So in um, verse 25, he says that the entire Old Testament, all that the prophets have spoken, right, the disciples are are not believing. This might be a little bit of hyperbole. But Jesus' point is that everything in the Old Testament points to me, and you are missing it. You're missing the climax of the entire story 
of not just God, but the entire story of the world. That's what you're missing. So there are two very significant points about Jesus' explanation in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So the significant, well, two of the really significant points are that the Christ is the one, right? And he's the one who is suffering. So in order to understand this, we need to figure out what the word Christ means and why he had to suffer, why it was necessary. So Christ is... I mean, you'll, you'll hear people say it means anointed one. It does, right? It's the Greek word for being anointed. In Hebrew, the Hebrew equivalent of that is Mashiach, or Messiah, right? So it's the same exact word. It means anointed. There were a lot of things that were anointed, right? You could anoint a priest. The priests were anointed. The altar was anointed, Right? So they all would have been messiahs. But they wouldn't be the messiah. Right? So there were many messiahs, but there was only one, the messiah. And the messiah, especially during this time period, referred to the king. Specifically, the one who was in the line of David, the second king of Israel. And so he would be the son of David, right? And he would be the king of Israel. So, this, I think, is what the death and resurrection of Christ, um, well, this is the main point, I think, that Jesus is king. The word king or Christ, right, which mean the same thing, occurs 18 times in Luke. Ten of them are from Jesus' trial to the resurrection. Ten of the 18 times make up a span of three days. The rest of the eight times make up a span of three years, right? Luke is shouting at us that Jesus is king. And he is king because he died and because he rose again. So what is the significance, right, of this suffering? Well, we see in Isaiah 53 that, hold on, let me just get there. We see in Isaiah 53 that the, the servant of Israel would suffer. So 53 verse 7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Jesus, when he was on trial, did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
So it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush this person. This is the Messiah, right? So when Jesus says, is it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? He's thinking, at least in part, I think, of a passage like Isaiah 53, where it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, right? And why is he dying? For the transgression of the people. So it was absolutely necessary that the Christ should suffer. So they thought the Christ would redeem them, would bring them out of slave, or out of um, bondage from Rome. And he's saying that it's necessary that the Christ should suffer. So what does all of this mean, right? Why is this significant? Jesus' greatest act as king, the climax of his of him bringing his kingdom to earth in all the Gospels is his death and resurrection. That's the climax. Chet, Chet mentioned this last week, but if, if we read in Luke 23, 35 through 39, this is when Jesus is being crucified. It says this, And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ or the king of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Right? Over and over and over again, Jesus is saying, Everyone thinks, or, sorry, Luke is saying, Everyone thinks that Jesus is not the king, not the Christ. I am here to tell you that they're all wrong, right? This is like great storytelling, right? The the irony in this, they're all mocking him as the king of Israel. Meanwhile, Luke is saying, no, 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 he is the king. He is. And this is how he reigns. He reigns through grace. He reigns through self-sacrificial love. Right? What other king is like this? What other king would leave his throne and die for people? Sinful people who hate him. It struck me too in Luke 22, verse 69. This is Jesus on trial before Caiaphas. And, and he asked him, If you are the Christ, the king, tell us. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And then in 69, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This is not talking about the second coming. It's not talking about some later time. Jesus is saying, from this point forward, I am reigning. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus is reigning in his death, right, from now on. He lays down his life, and he has the power to take it up again. That's that's what he's saying. Jesus rules a kingdom governed by love, grace, and self-sacrifice. And... He calls all his followers to do the same. That's the point. 
So the question, right, was why was Jesus' suffering and rising significant? It was significant because it wasn't any old person suffering and rising from the dead. Other people had risen from the dead. Lazarus rose from the dead. Elisha rose someone else from the dead in the Old Testament. But why, why was Jesus' suffering and rising significant? Because it was the king suffering and rising. And because he was in control of it. He laid down his life and he took it back up again. So the next section is 28 through 35. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So, in order to understand this, uh, the, the really big significance of this, I think we need to consider the other meal that opened the eyes of those who ate it. This is actually only happens one time in the Old Testament that someone eats something and their eyes are opened. In Genesis 3, 6 and 7, it's in the garden, right? So God has created everything. Everything is good. It says it over and over again in Genesis 1. He's created man and woman. And he said, don't eat from this one tree. And this is the tree that they're eating from. So in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree, the forbidden tree, was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So, I think that this is an allusion to this story. So the question is, what meal is this? In verse 30, when he says, When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. I think this is an allusion to the Lord's Supper. In Luke 22:19 he says and he took bread and we had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them right Luke is repeating the same language for a reason Jesus reenacts the Lord's supper and their eyes are opened So what were their eyes open to 
they were opened to Jesus being the Messiah, the King, right? Which meant a lot of things. In particular, I think Luke is trying to tell us, right, that the new creation has begun. So, the original creation was good. Adam and Eve ate the fruit and sin entered the world. Now, Jesus reenacts the Lord's Supper, gives it to these disciples, and their eyes are opened to the new creation, the new beginning, right? And we see this theme throughout the New Testament from this point forward. We see that Jesus is not, he's not just coming and trying to make people better. He's coming and creating new people. That's different. So, in this, Jesus is redefining everything that they knew. He's redefining what redemption means. He's redefining who Israel is. I still think we can say with confidence that Jesus is the Redeemer of Israel. It's just not how they understood it. Right? I think that's Luke's point. So, if Jesus is reenacting the Lord's Supper, what was the Lord's Supper all about? Well, we looked at that several weeks ago. The Lord's Supper was all about the Passover. Right? It was the first big redemption. Right? The first big redemption was when Israel... The nation of Israel, right, Abraham's descendants, were in Egypt. They were in bondage, in slavery. And Moses comes and brings them out of Egypt. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, that's referred to as redemption. That is redemption, right? You are in slavery. You are brought out of slavery. And so Jesus here is beginning to bring people out of slavery. Out of slavery to what? Right? What is the new redemption? It is not Rome. Right? That's the point. It's not Rome. He's not redeeming merely Israel. He's redeeming creation. Right? He's creating a new people. It means God's people are now redeemed from sin and death. Death was the enemy. That's the point, right? Rome was never the enemy. Death was the enemy. Jesus just killed death. That's what he did. He died and he killed death. And he said, right, if you follow me, you can live forever too, right? You are entering into his reign and rule over even death itself. This is crazy news, right? This is a turning point in history. This is the absolute climax of the story of the world. That is not an overstatement. Everything is about this. Everything in everyone's life is about this, right? All of creation. He's trying to bring all of creation to submission here. To submit to him. He's redeeming people from sin and death, right? He's displaying 
that he is a king who reigns in love, grace, self-sacrifice. How, how is the world ever going to be at peace? It's by submitting to a king who rules in love, grace, forgiveness, self-sacrifice, right? That's what Jesus is doing. And that's how this world will be made right, by people submitting to Jesus. So we, moving on in verse 34 and 35. I'll start in 33, actually. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. So Cleopas and his companion. His companion is probably his wife. Not that that matters very much. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So it seems that Jesus has not only appeared to Cleopas and his wife or his companion, he's also appeared to Simon. Right? Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So just a, a point about, about this. Luke does not record Jesus appearing to Simon. Luke doesn't record a lot of things that happened. Because it's only 24 chapters long, and Jesus lived for three years, or his ministry was three years. He lived for a lot longer, <laughs> obviously. And I want to um, just make kind of a side point here. Jesus appeared to 500 people, according to 1 Corinthians. Paul says he appeared after he had died. To 500 people. So, just imagine, right? Imagine Jesus is on trial. And the judge asks him, did you rise from the dead? Right? What, what, what would you do? What, how would our court system work? Eyewitnesses, right? Eyewitness testimony. Do we have any proof of this? So, we, we have 500 people, right? Get up. And they'll say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. And all their stories, right, are consistent. They'll all say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. 500 people, right? This isn't like some just, you know, random thing that happened and these 11 people were like, oh, let's make up the story, right? This is 500 people. This is a lot. Which helps, I think, me and everyone, right, with the validity of this. This isn't just like, you know, some story, 500 people saw it. So, our question for this section was, what was the significance of Jesus' rising? The answer is, redemption, creation, and the people of God are redefined. So, our last section here is starting in verse 36 through the end. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. 
And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So, question, what are the practical implications of a risen Messiah? Or a risen Christ, risen King? So just a couple of points here. It's interesting, in 36 through 43, it's like, why is Luke recording this, right? Why is Luke recording Jesus asking, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Right? What is the significance of this? I think the point is that the disciples still disbelieved, right? Kind of. Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. There are a lot of people today, right, who will say, Jesus' resurrection was like a spiritual thing. You know, it wasn't like a bodily thing, a physical thing. That is not just modern-day skepticism. Everyone knows that people don't really rise from the dead, right? Like, this is not something that happens every day. So when you see someone die, and when you see someone standing in front of you afterwards, everyone's like, well, that's, that's different, right? It takes them a second to really believe that that's who it is that they're seeing, It's not some, like, imagination. So Luke is saying that, no, 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 Jesus risen bodily is not just a spirit. It is him in his physical nature. It's actually him. The implication of this, I think, is is very um, large in many ways. I think it shows, so Jesus is the beginning of the new creation, right? It shows that we will rise again too. That's the argument, one of the arguments in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Jesus was the first fruits. He was the first one to rise, and so we will rise again too. You're not going to rise as a spirit. You're going to rise as your body. And I don't know how that works, honestly, right? Yes, you're going to decompose. I don't, I don't get how you'll rise bodily, but it'll happen, right? If... Jesus, well, I, I think we see, you know, in the, even in the Old Testament, um, Ezekiel 37, um, you know, Ezekiel saying to bones, awake. 
and sinews are put on them, and you know they literally have flesh put on them. I think it'll be something like that. But regardless, right, it's going to happen. The implication of that is that God's original creation is good, and he is not going to destroy it. He's going to redeem it. He's going to make it new, better, right? A lot of people in Christianity today, their hope is to die, become some sort of spirit, and go be with Jesus. That is not the final hope of the New Testament. It's not. The final hope of the New Testament is that we will die and Jesus will return and our bodies will rise and we will live on earth with God. It is on earth that we will live. Why? Because God made it and it's good. He is making a new creation, right? Jesus is the beginning of this. And so we will participate in this. So what, what are the other implications of a risen Messiah, specifically in 44 through 49? So let me just read this again. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, If someone you knew had said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again, and it happened, how, how carefully would you listen to his words after he rose from the dead? <laughs> really? I mean, I'd be listening, right? There wouldn't be anything else that would slip by me. So what does Jesus say? Actually, I think you can see this at the end of at least the first three Gospels. Maybe John 2. That Jesus says that repentance and forgiveness of sins needs to be proclaimed to all nations. Right? And at the end of Matthew, right? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. The whole king thing, right? I am reigning and ruling over the entire world, not just the world too, heaven as well. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus here, right, says something similar. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is not a suggestion. We are called, if we are going to be a part of his kingdom, to bring his kingdom to those places that are not yet submitting to the king of the world. He is king. He is reigning over everything, right? This is not, the message of the New Testament is not make Jesus king of your life. 
the message of the New Testament is Jesus is king, right? Paul goes around and acts, and he says, Jesus is Lord, right? And yes, in some, in some ways, you need to make Jesus king of your life. That's true, right? But the message over and over and over again is Jesus is king. And you can submit to him now, right? You can repent now and be forgiven. But if you don't repent, you will still recognize one day that he is king. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It will be clear to everyone who is running everything one day. And we can bow now in submission and humility, or we can bow later in fear. Those are our choices. So what is repentance, right? He says repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance, the Greek word is um, metanoia, which essentially means something like a, a change of mind. It's more like a change of like paradigm, change of um, you know, perspective. So it's not just like you know, a flippantly changing your mind. Well, it could be that, but it's, it's not here. Um, so a risen king who defeats... Death through love changes everything. So practically, that means that you know our mindset about how we spend our time is changed from Jesus rising from the dead. Our mindset about how we use our money is changed, right? Our mindset about how we um, relate to other people changed, right? It's all submitted to the King. He is the King, right? I know this is difficult for us to understand because we don't have a King. He is in charge. Right? That means that we don't get to decide what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our relationships. It's just not our choice. Right? You can choose you know, and to go your own way, but you will be punished for it later. Or you can choose to submit to him as king. But if you choose that route, know that you are giving up your life. That's what it means. So repentance. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. So that sounds, that sounds crazy, right? Giving up your life for someone you know, who died and rose again 2,000 years ago. But this is a king of forgiveness who is still reigning and ruling, right? It's not that he ascended and he stopped reigning. He's still reigning. And he offers forgiveness. No other king does this, right? No other king lets you rebel against him over and over and over and over and over and over again and says, anytime you're ready, you can turn to me and submit and I'll forgive you. Kings don't do that. If you rebel against a king, they kill you, right? That's what happened in, in this time period. But our king's different. So I'm pleading with you today to repent. If you've repented before, repent again. There are always things we need to repent of and receive his forgiveness again. 
And the third thing, so repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Again, this is, I think, difficult for us. But we are called not just to share Jesus with our neighbors. We are. That's true. But we have to be laboring for those people who know nothing. We have to be. One, one writer puts it like this. The conclusion of this, right, of the, the gospel, is this. It shows that the divine plan for Israel and the world has come to its unexpected climax and that you are hereby commissioned to implement it in the world. If we are going to be his followers, we are commissioned to war against evil. That's what Jesus did. He warred against sin and death. And it is our job to bring truth to the nations so that the entire world can serve the true king in holiness and righteousness. We don't have to be a part of the plan. You don't. But if you're going to be a part of his kingdom, that's what it means. Let's pray. God, you are so good. Lord, there are so many people in this world still that will live and die and never hear your word. And we are no better. And you have privileged us to know about your death and resurrection. Lord, we we just beg you for hearts that would submit to you, that would love you, Lord, I plead with you for every person in this room that we would all submit to the King. Lord, even now, help us to see that you are reigning. and Help us to see that submitting to a God of love and grace and forgiveness though it might cost us everything, is worth everything. Lord, I just plead with you to help us, to change us. And I thank you again for your word. It's for the glory of your Son, both here and throughout the nations.